Before I begin this episode, two quick disclaimers. First of all, in the previous episode, I know that my description of the history of communication left a lot out and is super simplistic. I also know that it ran the risk of sounding as though I believe pictures or images were completely alien to the world prior to the advent of television. Those were deliberate choices on my part. I wanted to isolate one particular medium of communication and trace it through history so that we would have a contrast for this episode as we look at television and the changes it brought to society as it became the dominant medium of that day. Obviously, there were plenty of beautiful things to look at during the age of books. There's an entire history of art that runs parallel to the history of printed communication, and I didn't even touch on the advent of photography and what that introduced into society. I was trying to just isolate one particular medium And some of that will become more relevant in the following episode. Second thing, just like the previous episode, this episode and some of the ones that come after it are geared towards explaining the past so that we can better understand the present. The practical implications may not seem quite as obvious at this point in the season, mainly because we are more focused on history at the moment. But I promise they'll become more prominent once we've laid the groundwork for the world that we live in today. I hope you find all this information interesting and intriguing, but I totally understand if you feel unsure as to what the point is. I promise that in later episodes, we will be asking more questions about what all of these changes have done to our theology and what we can do in response to those changes But we still have a lot of change to cover before we can get to that part. Now, with all of that being said, let's go back to the 1950s. If you were a kid born in the 1950s, your relationship with television was probably just beginning to form. Chances are, if you lived in or close to a city, you owned a television set, or you knew someone who did. If you lived out in the country, you were going to be out of luck for a little while. Only the major cities had television stations, and only television stations were broadcasting signals. So if you didn't live near a station, you didn't have anything to watch. In 1951... President Truman would speak to 13 million television sets in the first coast-to-coast telecast, but that wasn't going to be the norm for quite a while. In addition, if you had a television set, all you had was this grainy black-and-white image to stare at, which was still pretty cool at the time, but people weren't going to be okay with a grayscale image forever. In 1954, RCA would introduce the first colored television set, and 10 years later, a million of these would start being sold in a single year. It would take a while for the technology to become widely adopted in American society, but when it did, and that date is kind of debatable, it signaled a fundamental shift in American society. And there's no better example to demonstrate this than 
the debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. The next question to Vice President Nixon from Mr. Van Oker. It's hard to believe in our modern context that presidential debates are actually a relatively new thing in the history of American politics. It wouldn't be until September 26, 1960, that these would appear and that would appear through Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy appearing on television and radio. And this broadcast would be carried all throughout the country in what would be the first of four presidential election debates. The fact that this had never been done before, combined with the fact that they would be televised, meant that this was going to be a huge event. And it was. As the Museum of Broadcast Communications claim, over 70 million people tuned in to watch this debate. But even though the debate was broadcast on television, it was still being carried over radio. And because of this, something curious happened. As it is with any debate, someone wins and someone loses. But people were in disagreement as to who won and who lost the first debate. And that disagreement was tied to whether or not the person watched the debate or listened to the debate. Although this has been disputed, it's been claimed, and I believe there's some merit to it, that those who listened to the debate on the radio thought Nixon won the first debate. And conversely, those who watched the debate on television believed that Kennedy won, or at best believed the debate was tied and neither candidate won outright. It's not hard to believe that the presentation didn't play a factor here. If you go on YouTube and find some of the old footage, Richard Nixon doesn't look all that good. He sounds great. For all of his flaws, Nixon had a great speaking voice. But he looks sick, and the contrast of the black and white image makes his face look really pale, almost like he's a vampire or something. But Kennedy, on the other hand, looks really sharp and slick. It's obvious that he has stage makeup on. He looks like he's rested and relaxed and ready to go. But if you were listening to this debate on the radio, you don't know that. All you have are their voices and the substance of their arguments. If you're watching this on television, you still have their voices and their arguments but you now have Kennedy's pleasing appearance to take in as well, and being able to see changes your perception about what you hear. In a sense, people believed Kennedy won because they could see him. If you think I'm overstating the significance or the magnitude of this moment, you're probably right. I don't believe this was the moment when the script was flipped and suddenly television was calling all the shots. But I do think, though, that this was an indication of what was to slowly come 
over the next several decades. And I think it illustrates something even more significant, that the technology of the future was not based around the medium of the spoken and written word anymore. The technology of the future was found in moving images, and moving images would soon displace the written word as the dominant medium by which we receive our information. As Neil Postman put it, On television, discourse is conducted largely through visual imagery, which is to say that television gives us conversations in images, not words. Now, I think we need to pause for a second and talk about what a medium is. After all, the title of this podcast is based off a quote from Postman where he states that no medium is excessively dangerous if its users understand what its dangers are. But what even is a medium? I'll let Postman answer that real quick. We might say that a technology is to a medium as the brain is to the mind. Like the brain, a technology is a physical apparatus. Like the mind, a medium is a use to which a physical apparatus is put. A technology becomes a medium as it employs a particular symbolic code, as it finds its place in a particular social setting, as it insinuates itself into economic and political contexts. A technology, in other words, is merely a machine. A medium is the social and intellectual environment a machine creates. In terms of television, the TV set is the technology, and television is the medium that arises because of the TV set and because of it being widely available in the homes of most Americans. A technology becomes a medium once it starts employing a particular symbolic code, which, in television's case, is moving images on a screen accompanied by sounds that the viewer can understand and make sense of. A technology becomes a medium once it finds its place in a particular social setting, which television did pretty rapidly as it became the centerpiece of the living room for most American households, something we still see to this day. A technology becomes a medium once it insinuates itself into economic and political context. And you could argue that that happened on the night Nixon and Kennedy set this new political tradition in American politics. And even with the advent of the internet, television still has a significant place in the American economic and political spheres. We could run through this example with books, with radio, with the internet, and with any other mass medium. The technological capabilities alone don't create the medium, but once the technology is put to use to transmit communications on a mass scale, you have a mass medium. One that you, your neighbor, your schoolmates, your congregation, your coworkers, your town, your city, other cities, other towns, other congregations, and other neighbors can receive and respond to in some way. And, like Postman stated earlier, this medium deals not in words, but in images. 
But why is that even a problem? What's wrong with that? To answer this question, it might be easier to rephrase it a bit. How do you interact with the medium in question? We'll use books as an example. How do you read a book? Well, to read a book, and I'm talking specifically about physical books here, not digital books per se, you need to be able to concentrate on the text of the page and tune out distractions for a considerable period of time. And you need to be able to understand the language the text is written in. It's kind of hard to read a book in a language you don't know. And you need to be able to parse the vocabulary and the grammar of the text and understand what's being said in each sentence. But that's just the start. Not only do you need to be able to understand each sentence that you're reading, you need to be able to understand each sentence in relation to each other sentence. And then as sentences form paragraphs, each paragraph in relation to each paragraph. And then chapter to chapter. You need to be able to link ideas, concepts, arguments, and illustrations together if you want to understand what the author is saying. This is true of the written word and the spoken word together. When we listen to speeches and sermons and lectures or other lengthy oral presentations, or a podcast like this, we process the information in the same way, only through hearing instead of reading. And then, once you've done all of that, you hope that everyone else who read the book or heard the speech did the same thing. If you didn't, having a conversation will just result in one person pointing to the other and saying, did you even read the book? So now let's do this to television. How do you watch television? Let's take your standard 60-minute evening broadcast from your local news station. In order to watch this broadcast, you're going to need to give it some degree of attention but given that the news anchor commentary is accompanied with footage, interviews, graphs, and charts, you really only need to be able to understand what the anchor is saying insofar as it relates to the visuals that accompany it. And oftentimes, the visuals will do the heavy lifting in communicating the details of the story. There's no need to describe in too great detail where the robbery last night took place and what kind of place it was and how the owners are responding to the crime, you can see the actual spot where the robber broke in and kind of get a snapshot of the range of emotions the owners feel in a brief interview clip. And even though you're being asked to pay attention to this story in order to take it in, you only need to pay attention to this story for this story's sake. After a minute or two, the broadcast will shift to cover a different story totally unrelated to what came before, and you need to be able to reset your mind to pay attention to this new story. And after two or three rounds of this, there will be a commercial break where you can either Pay attention to the even smaller stories told by advertising, or you can take a mental break, and then the news will resume, and this two- or three-minute attention span cycle will pick back up. By the time the evening news is over, 
you've processed information for over an hour, but this information has all been compartmentalized. It's all been disjointed and detached from each other. And even though you've covered a pretty wide range of subject matter, you've only done so in a way that just skims the surface of what's actually going on. And this holds true even if you're watching a crime drama or sitcom instead of a newscast. You're asked to give the show your attention for several minutes, and then you know that in a moment of tension or suspense or a comedic moment, there's going to be a commercial break, often with a completely different tone from what you've just been watching. And you can either pay attention to that commercial or take a mental break from watching before the show resumes. This is something that we're going to be hitting on multiple times throughout this season, but the thing about mediums is that they're not value neutral. They ask us to do certain things in order to interact with them and ask us to not do certain things in the same way. They promote certain forms of interaction and actively discourage others. They set the rules for their own engagement. As Neil Postman states, My argument is limited to saying that a new major medium changes the structure of discourse. It does so by encouraging certain uses of the intellect, by favoring certain definitions of intelligence and wisdom, and by demanding a certain kind of content, in a phrase, by creating new forms of truth-telling. In other words, new mediums set the terms for transmitting truth, ideas, concepts, stories, and information, and new mediums create a demand for a new kind of content. And the content of television was unlike anything that had ever existed in the world beforehand. But television, like every other medium, it not only creates the content, but it creates the rules of engagement with that content, and in order to engage with television, we only need to give a fraction of our mental capacities in order to process what we are seeing. Postman again. When a television show is in process, it is very nearly impermissible to say, let me think about that, or I don't know, or what do you mean when you say... Or, from what sources does your information come? This type of discourse not only slows down the tempo of the show, but creates the impression of uncertainty or lack of finish. It tends to reveal people in the act of thinking, which is disconcerting and boring on television as it is on a Las Vegas stage. Thinking does not play well on television, a fact that television directors discovered long ago. There is not much to see in it. What makes television such a significant development is that the demands of television were completely different than the demands of the spoken or written word. And those demands had power behind them. Yes, books were still being printed and read and discussed, but they were being displaced. 
as being the dominant medium for communicating ideas in lieu of television. And the way that you go about reading books and discussing them with others is fundamentally different from the way that you watch and discuss the television shows that you watch with others. Our communities were no longer based around the written and spoken word, shaped and formed to interact with each other against a backdrop set by books and the culture of discourse that books create. Instead, our communities began to be shifted to communities centered around television. And the way that we interact with each other was being reshaped by this new medium that we now share. So what does any of this have to do with theology? Well, it has to do quite a bit with theology. So much so that in the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, we are going to examine the impact of television on the church and how this new medium gave rise to a new form of Christianity, a form we still see to this very day. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast made possible because my good friend Andrew Akins is such a great guy and has donated so much of his time and his talent to making each episode sound really good and sound really polished. He is so good at at what he does, and I'm beyond thankful for his help in making this podcast possible. This podcast is also possible because of my wife, Melissa, who loves me so much that she's willing to look over my manuscripts and point at things that say, this doesn't make sense, you should delete them. It hurts, but I'm thankful for it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can like our Facebook page and Follow the show on Twitter, at Digital Spell, where I'll be posting some articles and other writings relevant to this week's episode. I might even throw up some YouTube videos of that Nixon-Kennedy debate so that you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. And please, wherever you're listening to this, please consider subscribing and leaving a review and telling your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your social media feeds about this podcast. That would really mean a lot to me. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell.